Well, I invite you to take your Bible or your Bible app, and let's go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. We're going to see an incredible supernatural event in Acts chapter 3, and we're going to ask, what can we learn from that? How can we apply that to our lives? And here's the key concept this morning. Here it is. If you want change and transformation in your life, humble yourself, do a 180, and turn to God. And through Jesus Christ, God will release His wonder-working power in your life. So while you're finding Acts chapter 3, I want to show you an obscure passage of Scripture from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 and 6. Let's look at this together up on the screen. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come to save you. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Now that prophecy was made approximately around 750 B.C. by Isaiah. And in 750 B.C., people looked around and they said, well, God hasn't come to save us yet. We don't see the lame leaping like a deer. 749 B.C., God hasn't come to save. They don't see the lame leaping like a deer. 748 B.C., 747 B.C., 746 B.C., nothing. 650 B.C., God hasn't come to save them. The lame don't leap like a deer. 450 B.C., 250 B.C., 50 B.C., it's still not happening. Now, don't you imagine after about 750 years of this, someone would read that little obscure passage and say, is God ever going to come to save us? And are the lame ever going to leap like a deer? Or did poor Isaiah just have a, an extra long prophetic day at the office one day, and he was on overload and got his prophetic signals crossed on that day? You know, maybe instead of drinking from the fountain of knowledge, he just gargled that day, or, you know, something like that. But for over 750 years, that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35 went unfulfilled. So just log that thought in the back of your mind and hold on to it for a few moments, because many years later, Acts chapter 3, if you have your Bible open, it begins with these words, verse 1. This is from the message translation. One day at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John were on their way into the temple for prayer meeting. So they're going to the temple one day for prayer. And the verse doesn't say that this was an extraordinary day. You know, nothing about this day that would lead you to believe anything exceptional was about to happen. It just says, one day at three o'clock in the afternoon, Peter and John were on their way to the temple for prayer. Why? because that's what they did every day. We read in Acts chapter 2, just a couple verses earlier, Acts 2 verse 46, that every day they continued to meet in the temple courts. And why did they go to the temple courts every day to pray when they could have prayed every, anywhere? You know, why did they go to the temple courts to do it? You know why? Because one reason, they wanted to go to places where people didn't know Jesus yet. 
They wanted to be in environments where people had not experienced amazing grace yet. Verse 2 continues, Acts 3, at the same time, there was a man crippled from birth being carried up. Every day he was set down at the temple gate, the one named Beautiful, to beg from those going into the temple. Now, this is another important piece to the puzzle. We have a man who's been lame from birth. He cannot walk. And he's been going every day to the temple all of his life since how long has it been? Has it been five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? We read over in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, it had been over 40 years. And never once during that time did he know what it was to stand up straight. Never once in that time did he experience walking or running, things that that many of us just take for granted. He had never known a day where his legs were not limp, without movement or feeling. And probably, probably never once did he ever entertain the thought that things would ever change, that they would ever be different. So every day he was set at the temple gate because that's where people pass by to give their offerings at the temple. And so he would hold out his hand, hoping to get something from them so that he could eat. Now, this has been a part of his life for over 40 years now. Just think about that for a moment. No hope. No hope. Well, there's another extremely important piece to this puzzle that it's kind of easy to overlook as you're reading these verses. How did this guy get to the temple every day? He couldn't walk. You know, people had to bring him. They had to to carry him. He was totally dependent on some friends, and we don't know how many there were, uh, to get him to the temple. And did they have anything else they could do during their day? Sure. And yet every day, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they're bringing him to the temple. This has gone on for decades. And on this day, they could have said, you know, we don't think you ought to go today. You know, we've been doing this for so long, for for so many years. I've got a child that has an orthodontist appointment today and another one that's got a soccer game that we've got to get to. Maybe, Maybe we could skip today. But they didn't do that. Every day, they were faithful to take him to the temple so that he could beg. But on this particular day that his friends brought him, he's at the temple. Peter and John happen to be there. They're coming for the 3 o'clock prayer meeting at the temple. And as they walk by, on their way through the gate to the temple, he reaches out, he reaches out his hand to them. And he asks for some money. Now, he's been there so long, and he's such a, a fixture at the temple that typically people just walk right on by. They don't even make eye contact with him. He, he just blends in to the landscape. He's been there you know, forever and ever. But Peter does something that most people don't do. He looks him straight in the eye, and he says, look at me. Look at us. And the lame man must have been thinking, well, well, finally, somebody's going to give me something today. 
You know, maybe I'll hit the jackpot. And so he looks at Peter and John. His ears are tuned in with anticipation. And Peter says, look at us. And then he says, I don't have any silver and gold. I don't have a nickel in my pocket. You know, talk about disappointment. You know, silver and gold is what he needs because he's got to eat. I mean, what's Peter going to give him if he's not going to give him silver and gold? Maybe some advice from Dr. Phil or you know, something like that? You know, a lot of good that's going to do him. You know, Peter continues, I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you. He says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, walk. Walk. And the message translation says, verse 8, he grabbed him by the right hand, pulled him up, and in an instant, his feet and ankles became firm. He jumped to his feet, and he walked. He had, he had, never, he had never walked. When he was a child, his parents never had the joy. They never had the thrill of seeing him take his first steps. And suddenly, not over time, not through a process, not gradually, but in an instant, there's this surge of strength in his legs. He jumps to his feet and he walks. I mean, again, think about this. Taking a step for the first time in his life. And here's a real miracle. He didn't have to learn how to walk. He just walks. And he's so excited about walking, he's not content to leave it there. The text says, look at verse 8, he bursts into the temple and he's walking and he's jumping. He's dancing. He's leaping. I mean, he's got, you know, that groove thing going on in the temple that day. He's praising God with jubilation. And he had never done this in his life. After 40 years of confinement, 40 years of, who knows, ridicule and abandonment and embarrassment and loneliness and begging, no wonder he was jumping and dancing and praising God. And people who had watched this guy at the temple day after day, they're rubbing their eyes and they're astonished. They can't believe what they're seeing, what they're seeing before their eyes. He's, he's walking, he's leaping, he's jumping. Well, friends, you know, put this whole puzzle together. Like they did every day, Peter and John went to the temple to pray because they wanted to be in an environment where people who didn't know Christ yet were. And this guy had some friends who were faithful, faithful every day to bring him to the temple so that his needs would be met. And here's this man coming to the temple that day who for 40 years... 40 years had not been able to walk. And on that day, he encounters Peter and John there. And in the name of Jesus Christ, they do something for him that is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35. The lame will leap like a deer on that day in the temple. After nearly 800 years, that prophecy is fulfilled. And in an instant, God brings all their paths together by divine appointment. Peter and John and the friends and this lame man at this precise time. And in an instant, this man's life has changed forever. Just like that, as only God could orchestrate things. It all happens that day. All their paths came together. Now, as incredible 
as that miracle is, it's not the greatest miracle that happened that day. The greatest miracle that happened that day at the temple was not this guy walking. The greatest thing that Peter had to offer this guy was not silver and gold. The greatest thing that Peter had to offer this guy was not even physical healing. The greatest thing that Peter and John had to offer this guy was Jesus Christ. And that's why they were at the temple that day. That's why they were there where so many lost people were. And they weren't content to do nothing and say, well, you know, 3,000 lost people were already saved on the day of Pentecost. That's plenty good enough. They knew everybody, everybody still matters to God. Their work wasn't finished. Their mission wasn't done. Gene Apple is a pastor uh, who's written some books. He tells a story about his family on vacation. And on the way driving home from an exotic vacation, they stopped in Barstow, California. Anybody here from Barstow? Anybody ever been to Barstow? All right. I hear it's out in the middle of nowhere. And they stopped because there were some factory outlet stores there. Have you noticed those are always out in the middle of nowhere? And they've got this magnetic pole. There's nothing else, so why not do that? And so they stopped at these factory outlet stores, and Gene Apple had their five-year-old daughter Jenna with him, and his wife Barbara had their seven-year-old Elena with her and their 20-year-old son, Jeremy, well, he was off on his own just checking things out. They were going through a store and Gene Apple got caught up looking at some, some merchandise. He, he was absorbed in that. And all of a sudden, you know, he thinks, you know, where's Jenna? Any parent here can, can identify with that. And he looks around. She's nowhere to be seen. And he panicked. He, he didn't know what to do, and he couldn't find her. And so he's going up and down the aisles, and he's going faster and faster and getting more and more frantic. And he's thinking, what am I going to tell Barbara, right? And he thought, you know, I could tell, you know, at least we still have two other children. You know, no, that, that's, that's not going to cut it. And as he's searching, his son Jeremy walked into the store, and he didn't do the spiritual thing and say, pray, son, hit your knees. He said, start searching. You start looking for Jenna. I can't find her anywhere. And they're going up and down the aisles. And they're in the clothing department, and they're going through rack after rack. And they come to a rack, and they pull the clothes apart. And there she is, you know, sitting right in the middle of those clothes. She's hiding. And she has, you know, the biggest grin on her face. She's just laughing at the good joke she pulled on her dad. Ha, ha, ha. And he said, you know, I, I, I felt like strangling her and hugging her all at the same time. Well, Peter and John, they, they went to the temple that day because they were on a search and rescue mission for lost people they knew would be there. And there was a sense of urgency about that. And the healing of this man created quite a buzz at the temple. Everybody who had seen this guy every day for so long, they saw that he was walking and leaping and jumping. And again, they're, they're, they're in disbelief. They're astonished. In verse, verse 10, and people are running over because they have to see him for the, themselves. And so now there's this crowd gathering and there, there's all these people coming around. And so what does Peter do? 
He uses it as an opportunity to tell them about a greater kind of miracle that can take place in their lives when they're changed by Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. This is right out of the text, verse 12. The message, O Israelites, why does this take you by complete surprise? And why stare at us as if our power or our piety made him walk? He's saying, it wasn't us. We didn't do it. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his son, Jesus. The very one that Pilate called innocent, you repudiated. You repudiated the Holy One, the Just One, and asked for a murderer in His place. You no sooner killed the author of life than God raised Him from the dead, and we're the witnesses. Faith in Jesus' name put this man, whose condition you know so well, on His feet. Yes, faith and nothing but faith put this man healed and whole right before your eyes. Now, Peter is saying, the, the same power that made this man well and whole is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He's saying, if you think this man's been changed, well, let me tell you about real change that can happen in you. And then he gives them this challenge, verse 19. He says, now it's time to change your ways. Turn to face God so he can wipe away your sins and pour out showers of blessing to refresh you. Now notice that phrase, it's time to change your ways. Your translation might read, repent then and turn to God. Repent. And Peter wants them to know following Jesus Christ, it involves change. After all, you know, if we didn't need to make some changes in our lives, we wouldn't need Jesus Christ, right? We follow him because we need to make some changes in our lives. We have a sin problem. You know, it's like the woman who, who signed up for the aerobics class and the instructor said, be sure to wear loose clothing when you come to class. And she said, well, if I had any loose clothing, I wouldn't need this class. You know? <laughs> and if we didn't need to make some changes in our lives, we wouldn't need Jesus Christ. We wouldn't need amazing grace. But we do need to make some changes. Now, this deal called repentance that's talked about here, this change that's needed, is not just a one-time event. Now, it is an event, but then it becomes a process, a process that those of us who follow Jesus are in for the rest of our lives. It's a process we're in, whether you decided to you know, put your trust in Jesus two weeks ago or two years ago or 20 years ago. So how do we know we're doing that. I mean, what marks a person who is genuinely attempting to turn his or her life in a new direction by the power and grace of Jesus Christ? What marks a person who's been changed by Jesus? Who's being changed? Well, I want to take a, a few minutes this morning to, to unpack what this thing of change and repentance is all about. And I'm going to give you four marks Four marks of a person who is genuinely repentant. You know, how can you tell that there's real change going on in your life, in someone else's life? And the first mark of someone who's authentically changed is a conviction about sin. A conviction about sin. The Bible says, 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, 
we deceive ourselves. Or in the words of the former governor of California, we're all guilty of behaving badly. We all are. All of us in one way or another. And Jesus said this in John chapter 16, in verse 8. He said, when He, referring to the Holy Spirit, when He, the Holy Spirit, comes. Now, has the Holy Spirit come? Yes. He came in Acts chapter 2. When He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict the world of guilt with regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He will convict it. And that happens in those moments of truth when the Holy Spirit convicts us and we find ourselves saying things like, God, I'm not being the parent that I should be. God, I wasn't totally honest with my spouse in that conversation. God, I'm not doing business in a way that's completely above board and honoring to you. God, I shouldn't have said that about so-and-so behind their back. God, I cheated on the test. God, I'm greedy. I'm self-centered. God, I, I never should have moved in with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend. And friends, when that happens, that's God the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. And it's one of the marks of genuine change and repentance in your life, in my life. And it opens the door to the second mark, which is brokenness over sin. Brokenness over sin. Brokenness is an important part of true repentance. Genuine repentance in your life, genuine change is marked by brokenness. And Peter himself is an example of that. You remember when he was so bold with Jesus and he said, I, I would never, ever deny you, Lord. I will follow you to the death. And that night, same night, he denied the Lord three times. And then the rooster crowed. And you remember what he did then? It says he went out and he wept bitterly. It's brokenness. What's going on inside of him? He's broken. He's undone over his sin. And once there's been conviction about sin and brokenness over sin, it ought to lead thirdly to the confession of that sin. Confession of sin. And confessing our sins to God, it doesn't mean we just mouth our particular sins to Him like a grocery list. God, well, I've done this, I've done that. No, it means we agree with God about our sins. It means we agree and we have changed our minds about that sin. God, it's not right. It dishonors you. It dishonors others. It dishonors my body. It means we agree with God that this sin is harmful and cost the life of Jesus who died on the cross to pay for that sin. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin. And friends, God knows our motivation. He knows if we really mean it or not. He knows if we just want to be forgiven to get out of a tight squeeze or, or because we got caught or if we truly agree with Him and we genuinely want this area to change in our lives. And we want it to be a turning point in our lives. And there's one more mark of a person who's genuinely changing, genuinely turning from their sins, and that is change from sin. Change from sin. Now look at what John the Baptist said about this. 
This is in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. He said, prove by the way that you live that you really have turned from your sins and turned to God. Prove by the way that you live that you have repented, that you have turned from your sins and turned to God. That's the 180. And you know what will happen in your life if you get convicted over your sin and you get broken by your sin and you confess your sin, but you're not serious about changing your sin? You know what's going to happen in your relationship with God? It's going to become distant. It's going to be just like what happens when you have a relationship with another human being where there's undealt with junk going on. You become distant in that relationship. And when you have irreconciled differences with God, you become distant and cordial with God. Oh, you'll be cordial in that you'll still go to church. You'll be cordial in that you'll still be part of that small group. You'll be cordial in that you'll still be part of that ministry team, but it will be distant. Because when you get too close to real change, it gets too convicting. And so you keep your distance. You know, churches are, are famous for having buildings that, that are full of people who are distant and cordial in their relationships with God. And people who are distant and cordial with God can get by with anything in their lives. And they still feel good about themselves because, you know, well, I, I still go to church. You don't want that, do you? And so I'm just asking you, if God brings you to a point of real change in your life, don't say no to God. You know, saying no to God is what got you in trouble in the first place. You know, saying no to God is what messed up your marriage in the first place. You know, saying no to God is what got you into that relationship you never should have gotten into in the first place. You know, saying no to God is what caused all those problems and hurts and misunderstandings. You know, if God has finally brought you to the place that you're ready to change and finally to get right, don't say no. Because that, that means more of the same. And your relationship with God, and you can do this for years, it will be distant and cordial. And what did John the Baptist say? Prove by the way that you live that you have really turned from your sins and turned to God. That's the kind of call that, that Peter was issuing to these people that day in the temple to become followers of Jesus Christ. And he said, now it's time. It's time, not just to receive grace, but to change your ways, to turn your face to God so he can wipe away your sins and pour out showers of blessing to refresh you. And what do you think happened? There was a huge response that day. Acts chapter 4, verse 4 says, many who heard the message believed, and the number of believers grew to be about 5,000. That's just counting the men, if you're counting by biblical standards. So do you see the bigger picture of what's happening here? Peter and John, they go to the temple every day to pray. So they can be around lost people. And these friends, every day they bring this lame friend. So they bring him there. He, he's there. And he gets healed. And it creates a stir. It creates a crowd. And then there's all these people in the crowd at the temple that day, and Peter gives them this message of repentance, this message of change. And their lives get changed. 
And on that day, the prophecy from Isaiah 35, not only did it get fulfilled, the lame will leap like a deer, but God came and God saved. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were convicted of their sin and broken by their sin and confessed their sin and were changed from their sin and became followers of Jesus Christ, living in this amazing grace. You know, it's, it's an amazing story, an amazing story. The message of Isaiah was fulfilled. God will come to save you, and the lame will leap like a deer. But not just the lame, everybody leaping and dancing and praising the Lord because the lost had been found, and their sins had been forgiven, and their lives had been transformed, changed, never the same again. What a passage. What a God. What an event that took place. And that same God is still working in our midst. He's still stirring in our midst. And He wants His grace and His power to flow. He wants to release His grace and power to us as we respond to Him. And we have that opportunity now. We're going to come around the Lord's table. This passage just leads us right into it. And I'm going to ask commission leaders and elders, if you would come now and take your places to serve. I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, God demonstrated he demonstrated His love toward us, toward us, in that while we were still sinners, while we were still in our sin, while we were still lost, while we were still in darkness, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. He demonstrated His love. The Apostle John said, we love Him because He first loved us. And He demonstrated that love. Jesus Himself said, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, we come to the table and partake of the bread and the cup celebrating because our sins have been forgiven, wiped away, past, present, and future. But there's another sense in which we continue to commit sin. And when we let that sin build up, and we don't engage in genuine repentance, we become cordial and distant with God. It, be it comes between us. And 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and He'll forgive us our sins and He'll cleanse us. He'll, he'll wash us of all unrighteousness completely. And so we come to the Lord's table on a regular basis because Jesus commanded us to. And it reminds us of all that He's done for us and the life 
that he's called us to. We come on a regular basis so that we don't become distant and cordial in our relationship with God. This is a, a wonderful time to let God know what you're broken over, to name it, to agree with Him, and to let Him know where you want to see change in your life and how you plan to make changes in your life. Someone wrote this, come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come not to testify that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. And so we come to the table with love, with gratitude, and with confession. Would you pray with me? Father God, we, we thank you so much for, for your amazing love. John 3.16, for you so loved the world, so you, you so loved each one of us that you gave your only son to die on the cross that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And John wrote, but to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become children of God even to those who believe on his name. Oh, Lord God, we come as your adopted children, so grateful. And we want to, to live well. We want to represent you well. We want to honor you in every part of our lives. We want our light to shine brightly. And so, God, we, we come humbly and we pray Holy Spirit, that you would search us and sh show us th those areas that, that you're still chiseling away. You're, you're the sculptor, sculptor, chiseling away and knocking away from our lives anything that doesn't resemble Jesus. And so we pray that you would bring us near to you, that we would break through. If, if we have any cordiality or distance in our relationship, that, that today would be a breakthrough. And we would talk to you heart to heart as we receive um, these representations of your body, your blood, broken, poured out for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.